Hello and welcome to Millions of Screens. I'm creative producer Leo Garcia, joined via Zoom by TV awards editor Libby Hill and TV deputy editor Ben Travers. Today we're going to be talking about how the future of filmmaking is television. That's a joke, but maybe, maybe kind of true. Maybe kind of true. We'll dig into that a little bit later. But I really, I, I thought we talked about this before we started, but it's too early to talk about Godzilla versus Kong. Like, <laughs> I yeah. know we're all chomping at the bit, but next next week, Shame next week, tune in for a very special Damn. Kong v Godzilla. We're gonna figure out wh- where we all stack up. I had I mean, no idea oh. I was gonna be in the minority. I know you're. I never would have agreed to this. <laughs> I think I'll, I'll try to act as an impartial moderator. <laughs> no, you can't. You I think, no, I'll you tell can. you the truth. I'll try. No, he's gonna be great. I'll try. I'll try. I'll try to be Perfect. impartial. It is a millions and millions of little screens. Can't you shut up? I'm busy. Boy, what a great show. Skipping ahead to the clicker, our recap of the biggest news items from this past week. Ben, you're in you're in digital South by Southwest, are you not? I am in digital Austin, Texas, at virtual Paramount Theaters, watching virtual television and film. Well, what can you tell us about what is uh, occurring in the TV space at South by uh, and what are sort of your overall thoughts on for inaugural virtual version? Well, was, last year was the, yeah, this is the inaugural virtual version. Last year was kind of the big statement for the, the film and television industry that, yeah, okay, maybe maybe big things were happening with this pandemic. Maybe we should take it pretty seriously because they just canceled a, a giant event uh, I mean, days before it was set to, to begin. Um, so yeah, I, I think this year, to me, what's been interesting about South by is just kind of how TV heavy it is. I mean, TV is always a presence at South by at least since uh, like the girls premiere uh, over a decade ago now. Um, and it's usually a, a pretty big kind of opportunity for shows usually that are coming out pretty soon, usually that are kind of higher profile spring releases um, to get a little bit of a boost and to uh, contribute to the uh, Keep Austin Weird vibes of the festival. Um, this year, they actually have the opening night like marquee event, the headliner, and Demi Lovato's Dancing with the Devil docuseries, which we will have a review up of by the time you hear this podcast. Uh, so check that out from our <laughs> Corgi Corner correspondent, Ann Donahue. Uh, but beyond that, they already had, even before that headliner on Tuesday, they already had two... Actually, maybe three. They had three TV shows premiere, Hysterical from FX, the Sasquatch doc on Hulu, and Confronting a Serial Killer on Stars. Um, and it just kind of keeps going from there. Um, there's uh, a few more docs that kind of bridge the gap between film and TV, like the WeWork documentary, which I'll be reviewing on Wednesday. Um, but in terms of, of TV, TV uh, made for love from HBO Max, which made at least like small little waves when it debuted its trailer that featured Ray Romano singing Crazy in Love. Um, that's making its premiere, and it's a strange little show with Kristen Milioti and Billy Magnuson, if I'm saying that correctly, um, about a tech billionaire who uh, comes up with an idea for a chip that will connect you to your partner in such a way that you're literally sharing a mind you will both have two bodies you will still be walking around like a brand at south by southwest uh but your mind will be the same and and all of your thoughts will be shared and you will have a unique uh connection unlike anything you've ever experienced before 
Uh, so basically what happens to married couples after a certain point anyway. Precisely, Libby. So there's no problem in this plan. Like everyone will want to get a chip mm-hmm. and this show is just a happy little romance mm-hmm. depicting a fun times ahead for all of us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Ray Romano is partnered with a sex doll. So that's fun. Uh, in addition, there is also stars much anticipated, at least in the IndieWire office, return of the girlfriend experience season three is everybody here excited about the return of the girlfriend experience yeah i I mean you you know how excited i was when i said uh still (laughs) i remember back when we were still in the office and we found out like we we confirmed that like the third season god we might have already been home by then we confirmed that that third season was like in production and ben was so happy it was like his best day it's a nice little anthology series uh executive produced by steven soderbergh and co-created by lodge kerrigan and amy simons uh both of whom basically were the showrunners writers directors of the first season uh just kind of switching off duties as they went and then in season two when they had uh, a new story they actually split the season in half and they did seven episodes with one main character, seven episodes of a completely different story with another main character. Lodge wrote and directed one. Amy wrote and directed the other. And then they played them back to back. So like the first episode of each story would play on the same night. And then they do the second episode of each story and so on and so forth until the season completed. Um, I love the way that they like that this show continues to kind of push the medium in that way. Like they just, they were one of the early adopters of the half hour dramatic format, which is a pretty exciting thing. That's obviously caught on. And we've talked a lot about recently, Um, but they also just kind of, (laughs) yes, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Um, But they've also just kind of uh, kept challenging themselves in terms of what story they want to tell within the world of the girlfriend experience, which is, um, you know, a high-end escort service uh, that, well, actually it changes pretty much every year, like the, the kind of the details of what their clientele is like and what their reason for getting in are and, and kind of their experience within it as well. Um, so yeah, the third season is uh, no longer from Lodge and Amy. Uh, they bowed out and Anya Marquardt is now the writer-director of all 10 episodes. Uh it's set in kind of this, I guess, near future slash now-ish London tech world where uh, a young a young woman uh, who kind of defers from going, like from finishing her degree and gets sucked up into the startup company that's trying to work on quantifying uh, attraction and like how people kind of connect with their partners and how they choose their partners and... Uh, basically just looking for ideas for ways to like one build up this huge amount of data and then two, you know, how to make money off of it. Um, so her experience and the girlfriend experience and her experience at work kind of go hand in hand to help inform the progress of, of all of that. And it's, uh, I mean, they only gave us two episodes, so it's a little too early to tell exactly where it's going to go, but it's very exciting, very well directed. Uh, there's a reason it's on IndieWire's list of best directed TV shows of all time, I do believe. Um, so look forward to that one. I don't think we have a release date, but if you're going to South by, you can check it out. The last thing I'll say about South by Southwest is that uh, another long awaited, much discussed, limited series, anthology series offering uh, the horrifically titled Amazon original Them 
is premiering at South by Southwest. Um, the first season, which may or may not be subtitled Covenant, uh, that was something that was rumored back when it was first announced and wasn't part of the original teaser package and isn't on the poster, but maybe, kind of, sort of, is something to do with the first season, is written and uh, executive produced by Little Marvin. Uh, the whole series is executive produced by Lena Waite, and uh, it tracks a black family in the 1950s who moved from North Carolina to an all-white Los Angeles neighborhood during the period known as the Great Migration. And if you've seen the teaser trailer, which they already released, then uh, you kind of know what's going to happen next, even if you also have no idea exactly what is going on, because it's a very uh, moody, completely dialogue-free, but very, very frightening, very, very unsettling trailer. Uh, So I'm excited to check that out as well. Um, Yeah, South By has a lot of TV going on. I don't think it's any surprise. Uh, There's not a lot that they had to shift in terms of incorporating TV since they've been doing it for so long. There's plenty of people who want the extra boost, even you know, in a virtual version of the festival. I'm sure they're worried about piracy to some extent, but they're not giving up full seasons here, so it's not giving away everything, uh, even if that is a, a factor. Uh, so yeah, I think it's nothing but upside at this point. Well, sort of related... The idea that uh, you know there's a there's a bigger spotlight on TV at, at South by um, on Monday when the Oscar nominees were announced, uh, it's telling that five of the eight Best Picture nominees debuted on streaming platforms. Uh, and I did kind of tongue in cheek at the beginning of this episode mentioned that the future of filmmaking is on television. What were you guys thoughts about that? If you had any sort of off the bat and the, the idea that like, especially with HBO for at least 2021 doing everything, you know, day and date on the platform, HBO max, I should say day and date on the platform, how, how things are sort of shifting and that maybe the traditional, you know, theatrical model is changing or is this just a one year aberration? There was a lot of question know. there. <laughs> That's okay. I'm going to pick one. I'm going to answer it. I would love to think that this was a new beginning for the the Film Academy and the legitimization of, of streaming as, as a way to release and consume film. I don't know that that's going to be true. I think people like going to movie theaters. I think that people like the movie experience. I think that that is grandfathered in uh, and is so deeply ingrained in, in American culture that it will never really die. I, I just think that, I don't know, I, I loved seeing all of those streamers. And I do think it is obviously a function of not being able to release. I mean, that it, clearly it is. But also, you know, Netflix had more representation than ever. You know, they, they just keep expanding their nominations. It feels like a good development to me, but I also don't trust that it's permanent. I think that there is too strong, let's say, a lobbying interest in getting film back to theaters and in large part exclusively to theaters that is not necessarily in the best interest of consumers or maybe even independent filmmakers. I would, I would say too that uh, one of the things that struck me at least initially about the movies that did well with the Oscars, especially something like Judas and the Black Messiah, in addition to, you know, the, the Netflixes of the world is simply that um, I think even if we don't see this same kind of great migration to streaming and stuff premiering on streaming 
and then you know writing out into into Oscar nominations. I think we'll probably see more of the distributors partnering with streaming or you know using their own in-house streaming services to release these movies time to the voting periods or time to the months leading into the voting periods. So that if they did have a theatrical release earlier, you know, say the end of December. By January, they'll be putting it on a streaming service, or by February, they'll be putting it on a streaming service, simply because the exposure just cannot be compared to anything else. Like, it is making it as easy as possible for people to see this. The more people who see it, the more people who talk about it, the pressure mounts for other people to watch it, and that's just good for your movie. Like, that's 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 the... It's a better version of the old strategy of we're going to release this in theaters, and then we're going to drop the Blu-ray right when voting starts we're gonna try you know like they they would send out physical screeners to people and that was its own thing they still have digital screeners for voters but no matter what they do with those digital voting platforms nothing is going to be as easy as clicking on netflix clicking on hbo max clicking on the streaming service that you already have to watch the movie that you really want to watch and also those things serve as a reminder to watch those movies where the you know your random virtual password protected six tuplet login fortified streaming outlet doesn't have um so it's just uh to me i think we'll see at least this being incorporated into part of the strategy to go after academy awards if not released in general uh what i would love to see is um numbers i would love to see numbers in how many people are uh consuming these these uh hbo max released films in those 30 days uh after their premiere Judas and Black Messiah is particularly interesting. We talked about this a little bit before the pod. It's 30 days ended the day before the Oscar nominations, like legitimately like five hours before the awards were announced. You know, I want to know if HBO Max brings that back, if there's an appeal to that. I want to know, you know, what kind of what kind of things they see they saw. And more importantly, as the year goes on, I want to see how those numbers are affected when theaters open up again. Now, we'll never get that. And even if we did get that, I wouldn't have the we we wouldn't necessarily have all that data from before to compare it to. But I think it would be very interesting. I, I, I would love to I would love to have more context for for all of this all of this stuff that we're theorizing about. Well, kind of related to, to that to that sentiment, my joking sentiment that uh, the future of filmmaking will occur mm-hmm. in television. It's interesting that a bunch of news hit the wire this morning that all sort of points in that direction where you see this like cross-pollination the idea like the lines are getting blurred that there really isn't no no line that it's as as barry jenkins said like uh it's just storytelling it's all you know storytelling and moving images uh television and film um but you have uh steven yoon fresh off his minari uh best actor nom uh reuniting with a24 for a 10 episode tv series uh with ali wong uh, you have Ryan Johnson uh, set for a 10-episode straight-to-order Natasha Leone mystery called Poker Face for Peacock. Uh, you have the aforementioned Barry Jenkins. Uh, his Underground Railroad series uh, will premiere on, on Amazon uh, this spring, summer. And then uh, Let the Right One In, the third iteration of this story? Fourth. The f- fourth. The fourth. fourth. The fourth iteration. Book. Movie, okay. movie, TV show. Fourth, the fourth iteration <laughs> of the story, which will, is set at, at Showtime, 
And I just wanted to sort of get your guys' general thoughts on this, either the, the general idea that, like, it's all made up, this film versus TV narrative, but also, which are you most excited about of all the, all these projects? I know Ben's got a pick. Well, I will, I'll answer the first question first, I guess, in that um, it's yes and no. Like, the, the, the idea of, of TV and film being uh, storytelling, like, primarily just storytelling through moving, moving images and, and audio, obviously, um, that's, that is essentially true. The, the problem is when you don't recognize the different structures needed to tell those stories well. So, like, there's certain people, like Gary Jenkins, who I trust completely to tell his story as needs to be told for an 11-hour venture. And then there's people who are like, no, 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 I can just structure this and fit it in however I want and stretch it and put this there and put that there. And, like, it'll just, like people just wait it out because they committed and it'll be fine. And that's that's where we get into the, the necessity to kind of define, okay, you're making a TV show, so you need to structure it this way. And you're making a movie, you need to structure it this way. I feel like we're going to be having this discussion uh, probably in a matter of days, Leonardo, when we finally watch Zack Snyder's Justice League, uh, which is a four-hour movie. And I... <laughs> Already but, feel although, like although that's it's split, it's split, true. Although it's split into six parts and an epilogue. Am I'm I sorry, am I, what? It's it's split into is six. It? Yeah, I thought yeah. it was competing for TV in at the Emmys. I thought that was why. Well, I don't I don't know if that's true anymore. But but I will say I have not seen Snyder Cut. But from what I know about it. The, the 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 story has been obviously expanded to the four hour runtime, and that it is set up as chapters. So you get six chapters and then a half hour epilogue. It 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 is episodic, and and it's and it's it is it is. Can I pitch? Can I jump in here and pitch something? Sure, sure, sure. Maybe the starter cut would have been better as a book. Well, I actually watching Man of Steel last night, and this is we're getting terribly divergent and tangential. <laughs> He, he starts, Man of Steel is 20 minutes up top of Jor-El, Superman's dad, trying to escape the planet, trying to avoid Zod. Superman, the first shot is Superman being born with this weird, creepy, uh, ultrasoundy thing. And you see the little baby being born. Uh, it is 20 minutes where, like, he is just a baby. He hasn't even left the planet, has not gotten to Earth. It feels like a preface to a book and any and any movie maker and granted Zack Snyder continues to make movies it is the least interesting way into this story if you want to drop back into that in the second act or as I think that would have been better served if you want to do that in a second Superman movie where you set up Zod as the as the bad guy for that movie sure but I, that was always my problem I, I, I was remembering my old thoughts on Superman when I was watching I was like it feels it feels like a second movie where you already know who Superman is. And I guess we all kind of know who Superman is. But, like, you don't get to see Superman be Superman until the last third of the movie, and it's all like a CGI slugfest. And it doesn't make any sense. It is. I think for as important as it is for a film to know when its story begins, uh, it might be even more important for a, for a TV show to know when its story begins. Because there are some shows I've seen where uh, the pilot really should have been the fourth episode, or the pilot should have should have been the fourth episode. Like that's where we that's where we needed to start. The first three hours, total waste of time. That's what it sounds like you're describing with with, with the Man of Steel is is 
is Snyder not understanding where that story begins? Um, the story he's trying to tell begins. Six chapters and uh, an epilogue sounds just <laughs> awful, uh, no matter who's making it. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think what I think what Ben is saying is right. It it really depends on if these if if these filmmakers understand um, TV and and understand what it is to tell stories with TV and and understand that it's not just an opportunity to tell a real to make a really long movie. Um, I think sometimes that when that kind of chestnut gets gets brought out in in interviews it's because technically that's that's how they did it like maybe that's how they shot it they shot it like a film but also actually ben let me ask you a question how do you feel about this we have all of these shows coming from big name or or notable film directors or, in th- or you know and and then this crap they're also like oh we're remaking this well well-loved thing we're we're doing this act we're we're having a showcase for this actor but in something like with ryan johnson johnson's project the biggest difference i would argue between tv and film is that in tv the showrunner is the boss and calling all the shots and in film the director is the boss and calling all the shots. Do you, how do you think that changes when directors come into TV and, and do their project? Um, do you think that changes the dynamic at all? I think it's a case by case basis. And I think it like everything else depends on the person. Like I feel like, you know, we've been talking about these things for like the, the kind of influence of, of filmmakers coming to TV for, for a long time now. And one of the more notable cases for me at least, was when Steven Soderbergh came on to do The Nick at Cinemax. And when Steven Soderbergh came on to do The Nick, like, talking to the writers who made that show, he knew that he, like, the the script was a collaborative process. The, the script was something that, you know, not only, uh, you know, he got to talk to them about as a producer and, and um, you know, work on and, and kind of adjust as needed on the day, but the actors got to contribute to, like, Andre Holland had a big you know, presence in, in his character and kind of forming that out. And um, I feel like if you approached especially something like television, which is such a long story and can evolve in so many ways as you're making it, um, if you approach that as a collaboration, then that's where you're off on the right foot. And I feel like because in in filmmaking, because the director is boss and, and they kind of take the script that's handed to them and then go off and make a movie that's a different mentality. And if they bring that mentality to making a TV show, then it, it inevitably changes things. Like you are locked into certain, certain ideas or, you know, uh, certain lines or certain scenes or certain approaches. Whereas the, the kind of fluidity that I feel creates the best TV, uh, is really what you need to hone in on. So yeah, like, I I mean, we've seen the people come over and, and you can tell like (laughs) this is a very rigid thing and it's staying the same and there's not, a lot of development and you can watch, you know, the thing that's placed in the first episode, you know, burgeon into whatever's going to happen in the ninth episode. And you're like, yeah, I, I know that's a movie. Like it took you way longer, but that's just the, the same kind of plot line and, and arc that you would have developed in a two hour thing. How was that? Usually Nicholas that doesn't work. Winding. Oh man, that was great. That was a great show. That was, that's a whole other experience. And that's where we really get into the other problem of like, 
of going too broad with the labels because there's certain there's certain filmmakers who don't abide by you know the the narrative realm of of storytelling like the the structure is not what's important to them the visuals are the, what's important the feeling is what's important the experience is what's important like they're not hung up on on you know you appreciating every beat of a story or or a character developing from a to b like winding refn was so strange with his because he was so insistent that he didn't even give a shit if you watched every episode. He said you could watch the second hour and then the sixth hour and then the ninth hour, and he didn't care. Like, you didn't have to finish it. You should just live with it whenever you felt like living with it. And if that's your approach, then I don't give a shit about the structure anymore. Go and do whatever you want. You can succeed in different ways, and that's the beauty of the medium. It's only when you are trying to to take one thing and make it into another thing without respecting... The, the things that separate those mediums and the things that separate them uh, for the audience is that's where you get into trouble. So um, that was a very long-winded answer to your rather simple question, but no, I, I do it. think it just comes down to the person, the individual person who has the power on the set because, right. um, you know, certain filmmakers who come over to TV, even if the executives and, and everybody are smart enough to uh, anoint a showrunner, certain directors just have enough sway where they can do whatever they want anyway. So it's just, you know, it's, it's about sharing the power and having a collaboration. And I, I mean, I honestly think that's the best way to build any of these things. Um, but when we're talking about the influence that they can have on a medium <laughs> that directors, film directors can have on a medium, that's, that's where I get hung up. Well, I imagine yeah. there's also a difference if it's like a film director who's coming over to a show created by someone else, but they're given carte blanche to direct all the episodes versus like a Scorsese who is like executive producer for Boardwalk Empire. And he just does the pilot. And then like he, he's, he's still doing like the television episodic directing gig. Like he sets the tone with the pilot and then like backs away and just as executive producer and lets Terrence Winter sort of, run run the show i have to imagine that when scorsese i did scorsese i think scorsese came in and did the first two hours or the two hour pilot of like vinyl uh i think he's probably just coming in and making a movie uh (laughs) then and then just letting someone else carry on this uh the show from there um yeah yeah yes (laughs) yeah exactly and i think i i think that when you're bringing in these directors, uh, a lot of times they are just the default showrunner. Um, I don't know that that's the wisest way to go because TV is a different medium. Um, but I suppose when you're doing a limited series, it, that that matters less. It's a matter of, of understanding your story, which is why, again, going back to the original Barry Jenkins quote about like it's all storytelling, is it can be a good way to think about it because you know if you're doing an ongoing series, there's certain things that you have fundamentally put in place you have to understand how to build off of things to extend your story in a satisfying way while still providing benchmarks for the audience to have catharsis at random points throughout well not random but carefully plotted points throughout your seasons throughout you know even an episode uh but if you're doing a limited series then you do have to you know you are condensing it you're working toward a very definitive ending instead of working toward Uh, the ending of a season that will build toward the ending of a series, you're just working toward the end of a series. So like you're building something a little bit smaller and a little bit more precise. So again, different rules will apply, but if you're making it for nine hours and you're going to release it weekly, or even if you just expect people to watch it 
in segmented portions, then you have to give them, you know, you have to give them those chapters. You have to give them those arcs. You have to set those things up so that it's still a satisfying experience rather than an overwhelming nine-hour dump of, of content or story or whatever you want to call it. Um, and then again, you'll go down to a movie where it's like, okay, this is two hours. You've got two hours. You got to fit it all in. You got to give the whole thing. You don't get anything extra, like figure it out. So you can say it's just storytelling and you'll be correct. It's, I guess it's just a matter of, of understanding what the power of storytelling is for and, and how to wield it. And there's some people I trust with that more than others. And I've been proven wrong plenty of times, uh, in both directions. So all of these projects could be great. They all could fail spectacularly, but God damn it, I am pumped for the Underground Railroad. Barry's going to nail it. That guy knows what he's doing. I have complete faith. And I mean, a score from Patel will get you a long way. There was a nice little IndieWire story today uh, based on the South by Southwest panel that Barry Jenkins did with Nicholas Patel, in which on the first day of shooting, uh, Barry heard a jackhammer in the background from like someone constructing something just over on the side, got really excited by the sound of it, went over, recorded it on his phone, sent it to Nicholas Patel and was like, build this into the score. We got to use that. And like, that's great. Like that is first, very exciting to hear. It's a great story. And secondly, it's like, he's thinking about every element that's going to help build this out. Like he's, he's trying to be collaborative and helpful from the very start instead of being like, listen, I'm going to shoot this whole thing. I'm going to just nail it, and then you guys just figure it out later on. I'm going to yell at you and post. It's like, no, I want to, like, make this thing with people. Let's do it. So Yeah, I also think it's it takes a very, like, intuitive and, and self-aware person to pick up on something like that and recognize, this is making me feel a certain way, and that way is something that I want to capture in the film. Millions of Screens is a production of the Penske Media Corporation and IndieWire. Our theme music features extras for the classic YouTube video, Bjork Talking About TV and Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Our editor-in-chief is Dana Harris-Brights, and our publisher is James Israel, and our executive editor is Ann Donahue. Our favorite seasons of The Girlfriend Experience are Season 1 with Riley Keough, Season 2B with Carmen Jogo, and Season 3, which is yet to be released. IndieWire's Millions of Screens endorses Steven Soderbergh. That's fair. That's fair. Except for Ocean's 12. Um, you can find us on Twitter at Million Screens, at Midwest Spitfire, at Ben T. Travers, and at Leo and Garcia. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play. So leave a review and let us know what you think. If it's good, we might read it on the air. This is Ben, Libby, and Leo. Remind you, as always, that you shouldn't let poets lie to you. You shouldn't let poets lie to you. Ain't nothing wrong with a couple of cold brews and a cool podcast. <laughs>